We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, please turn there. Acts the 8th chapter. So the outline of the book is really Acts 1-8. Filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered. The disciples would preach the gospel first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the outline, really, of the book of Acts. So that's what happened, and that's what's been happening in the narrative so far. So last week, we saw Philip going down to the Samaria, and an incredible move of God was taking place there in Samaria. Miracles, signs, wonders, people being baptized, opposition even. All of these things happened as Philip was in Samaria, but now there's a twist and a turn in the narrative. And we start this morning in verse 26, where we read, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. First thing to note is that an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. We say the Lord spoke to Philip. He did, but he used an angel. An angel is a messenger. He used an angel to make that communication happen. And the the command of the Lord through the angel was, go south. And there should be a map coming up here on the screen. Go toward the south along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So that would take... Philip down into an area which the text tells us is desert. And it is. It's desert. There's not much there along this road. And so it tells us in the text that he arose and he went. So, so much in this, no doubt, an unexpected departure from Samaria. You know, how do you leave something that's such a vibrant, powerful, impactful, revival, climate kind of an environment as was going on in Samaria. And then you're commanded to go down to this road and you get there and it's just desert. It's wasteland. There's nothing there. You know, obedience to the Lord is one step at a time. And this is the only thing Philip needed to know at this point was arise, go toward the south, and get on this road that leads to Gaza. All the other things that would happen after this happened after that. So the next thing that we're told is the next thing we should uh, do to obey. Sometimes I have people that say, well, what do I do next? Well, what are you supposed to do now? (laughs) Let's start there. And doing what I'm supposed to do now will open the door for the thing that will be happening next. So why would he be called to go from a place with lots of people, with lots of activity, to a place in the middle of nowhere? I think there are reasons for it. One is that Philip was an evangelist. We're uh, told that later on in the book of Acts, in chapter 21, verse 8, Philip was an evangelist. And evangelists aren't like pastors. Pastors tend to stay in one place, one flock, one pasture, one group of sheep, and they tend that flock and equip that group in order that they might be healthy and serve the Lord in ministry. That's what pastors do. But evangelists, they have to go from place to place. They're fishers of men, so 
obviously, they've got to go where the fish are, and then hopefully they'll go where the fish are biting. So that's what evangelists do. Philip was an evangelist. But he was told to go to the desert where people aren't there. So why the command? And it's simple. The Lord commanded it. He commanded it because he had something in mind that Philip didn't know about. And this wasn't part of uh, uh, Philip's job training manual prior to going into this role. He first served as one of the seven, attending to the Grecian widows in chapter 6 of Acts. First Timothy 3 tells us that those who use the office of a deacon well purchase a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ. He goes down to Samaria and boom, the Spirit of God begins to work through Philip in incredible ways. And so now he is here uh, in this desert place because the Lord commanded it. There was a new direction with a new future purpose. Few things I learn about Philip from just verse one. First thing that I see from the, the life of Philip is that he realized that the ministry belongs to the Lord and not to Philip. Ministry belongs to the Lord and not to Philip, and it's Jesus's church. Therefore, it's Jesus's ultimate responsibility to take care of it. So what about those believers in Samaria? How can I leave them? I mean, the apostles have gone back to Jerusalem and I'm the only direct representative or link to the city of Jerusalem, the headquarters of Christianity. So what about the people in Samaria? I'm leaving them. He could have argued that way, but he didn't because he recognized that the church is the Lord's. Philip didn't believe that if he left, everything would just fall apart. He didn't believe that. And I think that's an important uh, thing for uh, pastors and evangelists to understand. In fact, I like to exhort and encourage pastors, pastor your church like someone else will be pastoring it someday. And in reality, every single pastor, if Jesus comes back, of course, in the next whatever, while that pastor is still pastoring that church, then he'll be the last pastor that that church has. But if he doesn't come back, then somebody else is going to pastor that church. So pastor your church in the light of somebody else being the pastor, so therefore you're a transitional pastor. And I think that kind of helps the things. Well, Philip had that attitude. Number two I learned about Philip is that it tells me he knows his calling. He knows he's an evangelist. That's what he's supposed to do, and so that's what he did. And God would have to be the one that would give the increase. And then a third thing, obvious in the text, he was obedient. He did what he was told. I don't know what that ring is, but Doug's working hard back there to get it fixed. I know that. (laughs) Okay, just pretend it's not there. You're hearing clear. Philip was obedient, and that's important. Okay, so the next passage, uh, beginning in verse 27 as well, And it says, Behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him. So a man of Ethiopia. So uh, what was this? Ethiopia 
was not modern-day Ethiopia as we have it today on the map, but it was biblical Cush as shown on the map up on the screen. And uh, just that general area south of Israel and in the northeast part of Africa. So this man is called a eunuch. A eunuch was somebody who was castrated for the purpose of serving in a royal court. By being castrated, it helped him avoid any kind of temptation or scandal with the women of the court or even with the men of the court in the case of that kind of a a predilection. Uh, So he was a eunuch, and that was very common in those days, so that was who he was. He had great authority because he was in charge of all of the treasury of the queen of the Ethiopians. So you handle the money, that shows that you've got a lot of uh, trust that's been placed in you, and along with the trust comes authority. So he had tremendous authority, and it says that he was serving under Candace, which isn't actually a name of a person, but it's the title given to female royalty in in particular regimes, those who would rule over the kingdom. So he had an important job serving under a very important individual who was queen, essentially. We don't really know her name, but her title was Candace. That's what they would call them. And he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So that tells us that this man was interested in spiritual things. 1,500-mile journey uh, in a chariot in order to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so while he was there, it tells us in the text, that he was reading Isaiah the prophet. So he had a scroll. They didn't have Bibles like we do, of course, with binding. Uh, they had scrolls. And so there was the scroll of the book of Isaiah. He had obtained a scroll of the book of Isaiah while in Jerusalem, presumably, which I'm sure cost him a pretty shekel to, to grab a hold of one of those. But he had it, and he was reading it, and that's where our text tells us uh, we are. So... The Lord tells Philip to um, go and overtake this chariot. So what does Philip do? He runs. He's got a hustle to catch up, so he runs. And uh, so maybe that tells us another thing. He's in decent shape. (laughs) I'm not quite sure about that one, but a lot there. A wide open door. This is what the Lord brought Philip to this region for, was to meet this man and to have this mean man meet Jesus. A wide open door. And so there's Philip. He runs to the chariot. And while he gets there, he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah, verse 30 tells us, and said, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. So it's interesting. He was reading out loud. Otherwise, Philip wouldn't have been able to hear him. But Philip heard him reading. He was reading out loud. I I personally think that's a very good idea in reading the Bible, to read it out loud. Uh, It does a a few things for me. When I read it out loud in my own devotional life, then I'm hearing it as it's coming out of my mouth. So it's almost like I'm hearing it in my brain as I'm reading it. I'm hearing it in my ears as it's coming out of my mouth and going back into my ears. And I'm interacting with it in a different way with the text. Another thing that's helpful, I think, in reading the Bible out loud, if you care to try it, 
is that it's a great opportunity just to converse with the Lord about what we're reading. And I find myself having some of my richest times of prayer just in reading the Bible out loud and talking to the Lord about what I'm reading and asking him, uh, how does this connect with me today, Lord? What do you want to speak to my heart? And all the kinds of things that can come from reading the Bible. He was reading the prophet Isaiah out loud. So Philip hears him and asks him a question. That's how this whole evangelistic encounter started, with Philip asking a question. There was a lot that was going on on the eunuch side. He traveled 1,500 miles to Jerusalem, and now he's on his way back to Ethiopia. He bought a copy of the uh, scroll of Isaiah. Presumably he bought it, and now he has it, and he's reading it. So all of that happened, and Philip begins his part of the encounter with a question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch doesn't understand how he can understand unless someone guides him. So he needs somebody to help him uh, with the illumination of the meaning of this scripture. Now at this point, I think in the narrative, we'd have to agree that this is what you call an open door. (laughs) There's an open door for Philip to preach to this eunuch. I mean, it's wide open. It's just huge. It's like a massive wide open door. But it happened... Uh, because of the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, but also the question of Philip. I think we should pray for open doors like this regularly. Uh, Paul the Apostle, when he asked the, the uh, Colossian church to pray for him, this is how he asked them to pray for him. He said, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I'm also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. I think this is a good prayer to pray for ourselves as we start our day. Lord, open a door for the word today. Open a door for me to share the love of Jesus with someone and the gospel, if that is something that is they're ready to hear or whatever, uh, just open a door for the word. And so it's a good prayer to pray. And it's also good to do what Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter 3.15, to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts and be always ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us about the hope that is in us with meekness and fear, because we never know when somebody's going to be asking us a question as a result of the fact that they know that we are a believer. So be ready to share. And Philip was ready to share. He asked the question. The door was open. I remember uh, reading this uh, evangelistic uh, approach that this guy had come up with, and he was explaining it. And it started by asking a question. And the question had to do with uh, several points of, of Christian theology, like what is your view of the Bible? And you ask the question of the person, and everybody's got an opinion. Do you believe in God? That's the first question. And uh, what do you think about who God is? And you let the person talk. You don't try to answer their their thing. You don't try to argue with them or debate with them at all. You just let them go. And it gets down to who Jesus is and asking questions about who do you think Jesus is. And just let them talk. Everybody's got an opinion about Jesus. And then the final question is, if if you were wrong, 
in any of the things that you just answered me, would you like to know about it? And I would assume most people would say, yeah, I'd like to know if I was wrong. And so then you can go back and, and gently and meekly share the gospel with them. I've only tried that a couple of times. I did it one time with a, a young woman that was cutting my hair. And it was awesome. It was amazing. It was a tremendous witness. I, I actually would like to try it more now that I'm reminding myself of it this morning. But we should pray for open doors like this. So here's Peter, or, or uh, Philip, uh, and so the eunuch has invited him to come up and sit with him in his chariot, and he wants instruction on the things that he's reading. What was he reading? Verse 32 tells us, The place in the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. From where did that passage come? It came from Isaiah 53, it's verses 7 and 8. So right out of the book of Isaiah, and Bible students will recognize this immediately as the greatest messianic prophecy in the Old Testament scriptures, one of the greatest uh, maybe you could argue that Genesis 22 is right up there as well, the offering of Isaac with Abraham and all of that. But anyway, it's a tremendous prophetic passage. And that's where he was reading. Now, if you read, interestingly, if you read the English translation of, of this, which we just did, who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth is the last phrase. But when you read it uh, in the Old Testament text, it's a little bit different. And sometimes people wonder, why is the New Testament quotation of a passage a little bit different from the Old Testament original source material? And most of the time, it's because when the New Testament writers were writing, they were quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, which is called the Septuagint. And so the Septuagint translated it a little bit differently, so they quote from that particular translation. That's usually what's the, what the case is but it creates an interesting nuance of meaning, but the meaning is essentially the same, but it's a little bit different in the actual word. So, the scripture is opened up, and it tells us that the eunuch had a question, verse 34. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, beginning at Isaiah 53, verse 7, he preached Jesus. And what a great text to have. If you were walking up to the pulpit and you didn't know what you were going to be preaching on that morning, and somebody said, here's a text, Pastor, and you got Isaiah 53, that would be a great text to be handed. He was handed that text, that text. And of course, it's all about Jesus, talks about the fact that he goes as a sheep to the slaughter and and Jesus didn't defend himself. He didn't try to keep himself from going to the cross. He allowed this whole scenario to take place, to be falsely accused, to be beaten, to be whipped, to be scourged, to be humiliated, to be uh, stripped of the robe, to be have a robe put on him and all of the sufferings of Christ that he experienced. And then he allowed himself to be uh, crucified on a cross and nailed to a tree and then 
made erect by the cross and hung on it for six hours before he breathed his last and said, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my He allowed all that. He knew it was going to happen. He didn't do a single thing to try to keep himself from that that moment because his death, he knew, was for you and for me and for the whole world. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He knew that his death at Calvary was going to be the payment for every sin that would ever be committed throughout human history. Now, the person that understands that needs to receive Christ by faith in order to receive the forgiveness, but he made the payment. Forgiveness is received by faith, but the payment's made because Jesus died for all of the sins of the world, past, present, and future. And Jesus, of course, knew that, so he willingly allowed himself to be crucified. So Philip began at that particular place and preached Jesus to him. So what was the eunuch asking about? He was uncertain about the passage. He wanted to know, uh, of whom was this referring when it's talking about these things? Now, Isaiah obviously wasn't speaking about himself. He was speaking about the coming Messiah. But there are several views that have been proposed by uh, by Jewish people concerning the meaning of Isaiah 53, one view was that Isaiah was speaking about himself, but it doesn't make any sense historically. Two is that it was it was about the nation of Israel, because the nation of Israel has suffered throughout its history, and so therefore uh, it's a passage which metaphorically speaks of the uh, age-long sufferings and uh, trials of the nation of Israel. And then, uh, but, you know... Uh, that's not really, obviously, the meaning either. Uh, others say, well, it was about the Messiah who would come. And that's true. That's what you and I understand. And Jesus fulfilled that particular meaning. However, for a Jew, it's very, very difficult for them to understand that their Messiah would be crucified. Why? Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. How could their Messiah be cursed? How does that work? How does the conquering, victorious king prophecy of the Old Testament jive with the idea that Messiah would be cursed and would suffer and die? That didn't make sense to them. And and like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, to the Gentiles, this gospel message we preach is foolishness. Uh, but to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They trip over the cross because they can't imagine Messiah dying because of the curse. What they fail to realize is that he was cursed for us. The curse was upon him so that we wouldn't have to have a curse placed upon us. And then the fourth view is what is called the two Messiah theory. They can't reconcile the two understandings of what Messiah would be like, so they said, well, they're There have to be two messiahs then. So they named one Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah son of Joseph, because Joseph in Israel's history was a sufferer who ended up becoming someone victorious. And then the other would be Messiah ben David, the king. King David, David the king, uh, the conquering king. So two messiahs. Of course, that's not true either. Jesus fulfills both. What they couldn't see 
is that there, there would be one Messiah in two comings. First for our sin, and then secondly to reign as king. But they didn't see it. They only can see that. Anybody can only see that when we first receive Jesus and then the scripture. Uh, so notice how this whole thing comes down. It's interesting. At this scripture, Philip starts and he preached Jesus to this eunuch. Notice that Philip knew how to explain the scripture. Uh, here's the eunuch that's turned to this place in the scroll in Isaiah, and Philip knows how to preach Jesus from that place in the scriptures. It's one of the reasons to know the teaching of the Bible and know the books of the Bible and what they mean and know what the books of the Bible are about in their context. Because that way, when a question comes up about the Bible, we understand what that book of the Bible is. We understand what that particular chapter has to do with the meaning of that book of the Bible. And we understand how it connects with the rest of the Bible. And so we're able to preach Christ from that particular context. So somebody might be thinking, well, that would pretty much exclude me from evangelism. I can't tell anybody about Jesus because I don't know the whole Bible in every chapter. Well, I don't either. Don't worry about that. You don't have to know the whole Bible to answer people's questions. You can always say, if you're in a pinch, you can always be honest and say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question right now, but can we put this conversation on pause? And I'm going to take a closer look at it. Can we talk about this again? And many times that can happen. And you can go and you can do some studies, some homework, and get more clarity and then come back and speak on another occasion. But in the meantime, before departing that conversation, it's always possible to say, before we talk again, can I just tell you what Jesus has done in my life? Can I just tell you what my relationship with Jesus is and how it started? And you give them a two-minute version of your testimony, and you will have done a great thing. So the eunuch has the gospel now. He's had it explained to him. So verse 36 tells us that as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Uh, this is just a wonderful passage, because it teaches us so much about the relationship between faith and baptism. So they're going down the road, and the eunuch sees water. He sees sufficient water, and he wants to be baptized. Well, many believe that this eunuch was actually a proselyte to Judaism. Uh, there were a couple of ways that a Gentile could relate to Judaism. He, could, he or she could relate to Judaism as a God-fearer, which is more of a distant relationship to Judaism. You're sympathetic to its teachings. You believe in its teachings. But you're not going to go all in. Uh, you're not going to be circumcised, for example. And you're not going to... Uh, go through the ceremonial cleansing of the mikvah, which uh, there's a slide up on the screen. This is a Jewish mikvah. Uh, there should be a slide up on the screen. There it is. Uh, sort of like a hot tub, but it's not a hot tub, and sort of like a, you know, a little uh, swimming pool, but it's not a swimming pool. They go in and they get cleansed and they come back out. And so this is part of of what the Jews do through their ceremonial cleansing process. 
But it's also part of what they do when a Gentile becomes what's called a proselyte. That Gentile needs to be cleansed from from his or her Gentileness. And so the way to do it is to go through the mikvah. You go down in and you come back out again. But this guy, this uh, eunuch, he wanted to be baptized because he knew that there was a difference between being a Jewish proselyte and a believer in, in, in Jesus the Messiah. He knew that Jesus was different, and he understood that he was the fulfillment of those prophecies that Philip had explained to him about. So he wanted to be baptized. He wanted to be fully identified with Jesus. So he said, here's water. What forbids me from being baptized? Now, we, we handle baptism in a pretty cavalier way in the United States for the most part. We treat it almost like an optional thing, like you don't really have to be baptized. And it's true, baptism doesn't save anybody. But it certainly is the outward sign of the fact that we are saved. Uh, That's a very helpful thing for others to see. But in many cultures of the world, it's more than that. In many cultures of the world, Uh, cultures of the world, when someone submits to water baptism as a believer in Jesus, they have crossed the line. They have gone from what they were and renounced that and have come into what they now are, a follower of Jesus. And that can mean, in many situations, a death sentence or at least great threats upon their family. I'll never forget the very first out-of-country mission trip I ever went on. It was in 1983, and I was in a mostly Muslim country in Southeast Asia. In that very first morning that I was there, it was a Sunday morning, there was a, a service that was out in the boondocks somewhere, and after the service, there was a baptism in the ocean. Went to the baptism in the ocean, And I didn't know that I was supposed to speak at the baptism, which I did. And I didn't know also that I was supposed to go out in the water and assist in the baptism, which I did. They were all dressed in white, so they were all prepared to be baptized that day. It didn't catch them by surprise. They were ready for it. And then I realized, as it was explained to me, what was going on. These are all converts to Christianity, to Jesus, out of Islam. And I knew this much about the place where I was. This was a fanatic Muslim area. And it just dawned on me, and it overwhelmed me, actually, to realize that some of these people that I'm going to help put under the water today may die for their faith in Christ. But they knew that, and they did it anyway, because that's how much they wanted to identify and needed to identify with Christ. I wish that we had more of that mentality in terms of what baptism means. It means an identification with Christ which is so complete that that which we were is no more. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So credit to this Ethiopian eunuch for wanting to be baptized and fully identify with Jesus Notice that the text tells us that they went down into the water to be baptized. Well, that tells us that this is a full immersion baptism because you can't go down into water if it's just sprinkling or pouring. 
there's no water to go down into. So it was a full immersion baptism. And so baptism was consistent with the whole idea of the mikvah. You go down into the mikvah uh, to be cleansed. Water baptism involved uh, full immersion. Of course, there can always be exceptions. If you're in the middle of Sahara, you got to do something to, to, to make it different. And the Lord will allow it to count. I remember a guy in Pacific Grove, we were doing the baptisms at the ocean uh, at Lover's Point in Pacific Grove, California. And there was a little bit of a of a thing, you know, water coming in, water coming out. And so he's he's down on his knees and he he was he told me before he went, I've, I've had a little bit of heart trouble. You know, I just want you to know and the water was cold. So I knew that when he goes down under the water, it's going to be a shocking experience because the it's, you know, 50 five degree temperature water. So <laughs> the the water's there and it looks like there's enough, maybe about this deep, to where he can go all the way under and then pop back up pretty quickly and that would count. But what happened was when he was about ready to go down, the water receded and there was no water left. Well, I wasn't going to let the guy, you know, stay there for a long time. So I started throwing water onto him, you know, and trying to get him as wet as I possibly could. I'm quite sure that that counts. <laughs> but I think that full immersion is is uh, is the ideal. Now, the criterion is all important here. What prevents me from being baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you may. And then his confession of faith, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's, that's a very large statement. Jesus means Yahweh uh, is my salvation. Christ means Messiah. Son of God means he's God. So this is his confession of faith. I believe that Yahweh is salvation in the person of Jesus, who is the Messiah, who happens to be God. That's a big confession of faith. And so Philip uh, took him down into the water. But his confession of faith had to be with all of his heart. And I think that's just, you know, parents a lot of time want to know, how old should my child be before uh, my child can get baptized. Well, at, at the point where that child can believe with her whole heart. I believed my daughter when she came out of her bedroom one day. She was uh, busy back in there for quite a while, and that was unusual for her. She was a social creature, and so she liked to be around people. But she closed the door to her bedroom and stayed in the bedroom for quite some time, and then she came out. She was only three years old. And she announced to us when she came out of the bedroom what had happened. She had given her heart to Jesus Christ. She had prayed about it, thought about it, and, you know, she never looked back. She she started walking with at the age of three. So I can't remember the year we baptized her. My son was seven when we were at a, at a church camp in, by the Big Sur River. And he said, Dad, I really think it's time for me to, to be baptized. And so I asked him a few questions. Yeah, he was ready. So I just had, it wasn't the parent, you know, wanting to, you know, put on a, a good parental show in front of others. Yeah, look at my son. He's being baptized. It was the child coming to us. And I think that was really important uh, in that case. But uh, how old does a child have to be? <laughs> it just depends. When can they believe with their whole heart? And have have a, a proper confession of faith. And I think that probably varies from child to child. The same question could be asked about communion. Uh, how old does my child have to be before I can 
uh, serve communion to my child or my, my child can have communion. So I loved Gail Irwin's answer on this. He said, well, what's the purpose of communion? It's to remember Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's the purpose of communion, to remember Jesus. Well, how old do you want your child to be before he or she remembers Jesus? There you go. Well, the child can be real small. And uh, it's not going to hurt anything. So go ahead. Anyway, the, the wonderful good news of the gospel. He was able to go down into that water and he was baptized forever to remain a follower of Christ. Let's remember something that the confession of faith of this eunuch was greatly formed by the fact that that Philip had just preached the gospel to him from the prophet Isaiah. So faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. He had his confession of faith because of that. It's important to know what the baptizee knows what they believe in. And just one more comment on all this. What do we do? Do we tell the eunuch, you are now saved and go into heaven when you die? Personally, I leave the assurance of salvation up to them. That's his job. That's not my job. I'll tell them the, the terms. This is the gospel. If you believe it with your whole heart, you may be baptized and you can have eternal life. I leave the assurance of that salvation up to the Holy Spirit. Because that believer is going to have to come to a place where they understand what they understand. And it, and they need to understand how that's affected their lives. They really are in Christ. I received Christ, received Christ in 1969. I had a powerful experience that lasted for several months. But following that, for the next few years, you wouldn't have been able to pick me out of a crowd and say, that guy must be a Christian. Because I was living like the whole world was. Did I have assurance of salvation? No, I did not. Because there was nothing in my life that was consistent with living a Christian life. But after I was filled with the Holy Spirit, a few years later, the Lord began to work in me. And, I, and it, did I have assurance of salvation at that time? Yes. Because the Holy Spirit was speaking to me like he does out of Romans 8.16. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And by that spirit, we cry out to our Father, Abba, Father. And that's something the Holy Spirit does. When I read the Word, I, it, you know, when I was reading the Word, it just it made sense to me. It resonated with me. I wanted to do it. I wanted to live it. Whereas before, I had heard the passage, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. After I was filled with the Spirit, I read that passage and it blew my mind. And then Jesus goes on to say, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, the same will find it. That blew my mind. And the very fact that it blew my mind showed me that I was a Christian. (laughs) Because I wanted that. I wanted to live that way. In the Lord. Only the Lord can do that. Okay, so how does this particular story uh, wind up? Verses 39 through 40. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. So it's kind of like, now you see him and now you don't. That's what was going on here. He saw him and then he didn't see him. The Spirit of the Lord had caught Philip away. And he, the eunuch, went on his way 
rejoicing, but Philip was found at Azotus, which is that current day's word for Ashdod, one of the Philistine cities of ancient Philistines' time. And passing through, he preached in all those cities up the coast until he came to Caesarea, where Philip ended up living and making his home, getting married, having uh, a family. Four daughters, actually, that were virgins who were prophetesses in their own right. So that's what happened with Philip. But the, the Ethiopian, he went on his way. Where was he going? He was going back to, back to Ethiopia, back to his, his job, his day job, working for uh, Candace of the Ethiopian. So the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. The word caught there is the Greek word harpazo, the verb form, which means to seize violently or to be caught up. It's the same exact word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will be raised first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, or pazzo, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. One day, and it could happen today, Living believers are going to be violently seized and snatched up and we're going to be immediately in the heavens, in the clouds, meeting Jesus face to face and then he's going to take us back to heaven and we're going to be in heaven for a season until we return with him to the earth when he sets up his kingdom. That's the rapture. Say, well, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. That's for sure. But when the when they translated the New Testament from Greek into Latin, they used for the word harpazo, the word rapturus, which is transliterated into English rapture. So the, the word is in the Bible. The word rapture is in the Bible, just not in the English Bible. It's in the Latin Bible. So there you go. Beautiful. So the unit goes on his way, full of new life. He becomes the first native missionary to Ethiopia or Africa, if you will. And that's how the gospel got from Jerusalem to Africa, is through this Ethiopian eunuch. And he served, again, in the in the court of the Queen Candace. Now, tradition tells us that Queen Candace was converted to Christ through the eunuch's testimony, and that her conversion used her uh, caused her to use her office to promote Christianity in Ethiopia and in the surrounding countries. And it is interesting that in East Africa, in that area around Ethiopia, Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, there's a lot of believers, more so than in other parts of Africa. And uh, could it be that historically it goes back to Candace and to this one conversion and to Philip's obedience and going down to that road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And you never know what's going to happen, right? Just through one interaction, one gospel conversation. But it happened here and the gospel has reached Africa. Yay, Jesus. Yay, Jesus. And it's still reaching Africa today. I, I wish I could tell you some stories from East Africa uh, and I wish I had the time, but it's amazing what God is doing. Just put it that way. It's amazing what God All right. God is good. And we get to be part of it. Yay, we get to be part of this, this great commission, this great commission 
the mission of Christ, and we're joining him in it. So it's the great co-mission uh, in his desire to reach the world. Amen.